0: Please note this episode of The Criminal Maze contains descriptions of violence, death, suicide and sexual acts which some people may find disturbing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Criminal Maze podcast. My name is Olivia Duncan. I am a criminal solicitor.
0: And I'm James Constable, a solicitor at BP Collins Solicitors.
1: And you are listening to the Criminal Maze podcast in which James and I try to lead the listener through the maze that is the criminal justice system in England and Wales. We talk to various different professionals who interact with or have central roles within the criminal justice system, and they give us their time and tell us about what their job
0: entails. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Professor Dame Sue Black. She's one of the world's leading forensic anthropologists. She was the lead forensic anthropologist during the international war crimes investigations in Kosovo. Okay, Liv Oposo to you.
1: Thank you, James. And thank you, Sue. Um, thank you for giving us your time today. Um, so I was hoping that we could begin at the beginning. Um, it it seems from what you've written in your books and in interviews before now that you had almost kind of innate characteristics as a child that might have predisposed you towards forensic anthropology. Um, do you think You've always had an openness or an unafraidness when it comes to thinking about death. And do you think that that pointed you towards the profession you're in now? I'm thinking particularly of your your teenagers in a butcher's shop. And then perhaps even more strikingly the conversations that you speak about with your grandmother where she talks about women that foresaw death and and even tells you that, you know, she s- seems to to know that it will be you who's there with your father and she's saying this to a child and the way you write it doesn't seem shocking or horrific um so yeah i I wondered if if you feel like you'd always had a kind of yeah unafraidness about death
2: so i grew up um, on the west coast of scotland and my grandmother was also a west coaster and scottish west coast Um, if you go far enough back then they believe in second sight they believe in another world you know spirits and whatever and my grandmother always said that for her death walked alongside her every moment of your life death walks alongside you and at some point or another your paths are going to cross and if you're going to walk with somebody for the entirety of your life then you better get to know them and if you can make a friend out of them so much the better. And because my grandmother um, grew up in the 1800s, it would have been totally inappropriate for her to have a man as her friend. So death for her was always a woman. And so from growing up from a very, very young age, death was always she, it was never he. And in the first book I wrote, I, couldn't, I didn't think I had to explain to people why death was a she, but everybody kept asking me because in most people's perception, death is a he. And it gives that concept of almost an aggression, something to be afraid of, you know, fearful. Whereas when you make death feminine, it softens the edges. It allows you to think about death being compassionate. So my grandmother had no trouble whatsoever talking about death and was very, very straightforward about the fact it is an absolute certainty it's going to happen and if it's going to happen you may as well get comfortable with it so I always talked to her I was very comfortable to talk with her about things that were of matters in life and death and she had this most innate ability to talk to you at your own age she never talked down to you as a child so she had this wonderful ability whether you were five or you were 15 to to come to your level of being able to talk. So it made her one of my best friends. So that was, it was just the most marvelous relationship. But her son, my father, I adored my father. And my father, although my maiden name was Gun, he was a great shot. My father used to go out shooting. And so any opportunity I could to go out with my father, I trailed along like a little shadow behind him. So my father was bringing home rabbits and pigeons and deer. And so from an age of five or six, I'd carry these home with my father. And it didn't seem to me there was anything to be afraid of in a a dead rabbit or a dead pigeon. Mm. And my mother was a bit squeamish and she would do the cooking, but she would not skin the rabbits. She would not grill a deer. And so I got the chance to sit at the back door with my father. And my father would teach me how to take the guts out of the inside of a pigeon or or, a deer or whatever it would be. And that for me was normal because life and death are the same. They're just different sides of the same coin. This was a food source that my mother would cook that my father shot. It was perfectly normal. Mm. And when I was 12, my father said to me, what are you going to do for a job? And I thought he meant when I was growing up, he meant when I was 12. (laughs) Welcome to the world of Scottish Presbyterianism. So, you know, what are you going to do for a job? Because part of your responsibility is to give half of your earnings to your mother for board and lodging. So go and get a job now. And it just seemed the most natural thing in the world to work in a butcher shop and to learn where do you place a knife to cut muscle around bone and to learn from the butchers. So that when my marvelous, beautiful um, biology teacher, Said to me, You're going to university. And I had no idea what I was going to university for. I found the first couple of years utterly pointless. You know, I was looking at dead fruit flies under a microscope. How that could ever turn anybody's attention on, I have no idea. Or cutting stems of plants, boredom for me. But I had the chance in third year, they said, If you go into anatomy, you can dissect the human. And for me, it was the butcher shop but it was a different animal. So I'd had from early days, there's no differentiation between life and death because they were a continuum. I had this ability to carry dead things from my father that my mother would cook, to skin them, then to spend my teenage years in a butcher shop, and then in university to find myself dissecting the human. It just seemed like a very, natural progression and I'm inherently quite lazy so if opportunities (laughs) present myself to do something that I am already think I might be qualified to do why would you do anything that's hard when I already know how to cut a bit of muscle out and just you know cut a bit of bone in half no 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 squeamishness absolutely none.
0: So when I read your first book um, All That Remains I didn't really know what to expect and lots of it was about death and I, I thought it'd be quite a depressing subject but I found it really a in lo- uplifting almost after reading it. Um, and there's one part you talk about part of the human body that develops from the mother um, early in pregnancy. I thought that was an amazing um, part to put in the book. I, was, I found it really um, yeah, uplifting really.
2: So, so what happens is that when, when every single cell in your body is going to be made up of the things that you eat, the things that go into your body, the minerals and all of the sort of components of your food that go into your body. They are the building blocks that create every single cell that is in your body. And most of our cells die off and they get replaced, but there are some parts of the body that don't. And a lot of them are are in areas, for example, like the brain, so so there are nerve cells, neurons within the brain, that you have the same number of brain cells uh, in terms of neurons when you die, as when you're born, actually probably a bit less because we destroy a few of those along the way. Um, But they tend not to be areas that persist. So where you have areas that are perhaps teeth or bone that are quite resistant to decay Those are the areas of the body that we look to often in our in our world to say what can we tell about the person and the the enamel in your teeth that doesn't regenerate either if it did we wouldn't have to go to the dentist as often as we do so that we can look at our teeth and we can tell a lot of information about what sort of things we were eating from our teeth we can do it from our bone and our bone turns over about every 10 to 15 years so it tells us roughly you know what's going on in your body over a 10 year duration mm. the areas of your body that grow longitudinally so your hair or your fingernails or your toenails they give us a long timeline of things that are happening so that for example we could look at well not me I have some very clever friends that would do it but we can look at the composition of your nails or your hair and we will say that the composition of the of the stable isotopes in there leads us to suggest that you've probably, for the last two, three, five, however long the bit of hair or nail is, been living in the Northwest of England. Because we think we've got such an incredibly cosmopolitan diet, and we really don't. Much of what we eat is actually quite local. And our water, let's face it, even though we might have bottles of whatever, most of the water we drink comes out of the tap. It goes into the kettle. It's local water. And it sets down an entirely different signature in you than it would in somebody in a different part of the world. Now to find a bit of the human body that doesn't change from the point at which you are growing as a fetus there's really only one area that's going to persist and that's that beautiful otic capsule and it's a little it's like a little cyst that forms around the inner ear that inner ear where you have balance and you have hearing because you have a middle ear and you have an outer ear. So it's right deep underneath the base of your skull. And when that starts to turn into bone, the only place that the minerals can come from that we need to create that bone is from what your mum is eating because you're still inside her. You're not eating yourself. It's what she's eating. So her minerals that, that that she ingests crossover in the placental wall to you as a fetus and you as a fetus build up this otic capsule from what she's eating because it's so important the otic capsule that we don't muck around with it we need to keep it the same size all the way through our life so it forms at the size it's going to be for the rest of our life because it's such a delicate little structure that if we muck around with it, then we're going to risk the chance of of hearing not being optimal. So we grow it and we keep it static. And it means those cells that form the capsule can't regenerate. We don't want to replace them because we'd run the risk of that bit of bone growing. So we have to keep mum's minerals stuck inside that little bit of bone. So there's a limited amount we can tell, is the honest truth from that bit of bone, but we can say if your mum was likely in a vegetarian diet or a protein-rich diet, and we should be able to tell whether she was in Northern Scandinavia or Sub-Saharan Africa, or somewhere in that sort of, you know, in those general geographical areas when you were growing up. So you can imagine that when you've got that skeleton in front of you, We've got some information about your mum, we've got some information about where you were growing up because we have it in your teeth because they don't change and then if you're an adult we also have information about where you've been growing, where you've been living in the last 10 to 15 years and if we've also got your fingernails and your hair we can tell where you've been in the last Two, three, maybe four years. So there's a huge amount of information, those radioisotopes, the stable isotopes tell us about where you have been through different parts of your life, but you need to be able to know it's there to go and find it.
0: Fascinating. For those that haven't read your books, what is forensic anthropology?
2: Okay, so this is a question, usually it's the, it's the second or third one asked of me in the, in the witness box in courtroom. The first one is usually, what's your name and how old are you? And usually I can't remember how old I am. There's a very naughty uh, criminal defence lawyer in Scotland who knows full well that I can never remember how old I am. And I keep saying to him, for goodness sake, will you stop asking me? He said, no. He said, I know, I know it, it gets you off balance. <laughs> and then you can never remember. And you ask why I don't like lawyers. So Sneaky. Um, the forensic anthropology is two words. And both those words are important. The forensic bit comes from the Latin word forensis, meaning pertaining to the forum. And the forum was, of course, amongst many other things, the courts of Rome. So anything that has the word forensic in front of it doesn't mean you work for the police, doesn't mean you're an investigator. What it means is you are potentially an expert witness to the courtroom, and that's just the forensic bit. The anthropology is greek so we've got a bit of a mixture of of latin and greek and anthropology just means the study of the human so if you put them together it's the study of the human for courtroom purposes now predominantly though what we what we really mean is the identity of the individual and people will often ask what's the difference between a forensic anthropologist and a forensic pathologist The easy answer is usually about £100,000 a year in salary is the major difference. But the other thing is that forensic pathologists need to be medically qualified. Forensic anthropologists can be scientists in the UK. And whereas the pathologist's primary role, they have many roles, but their primary role is to identify the manner of death and the cause of death. We're predominantly there to help with the question of who was the person when they were alive. So we're predominantly about identity. But often we'll find with pathologists where there's a question about anatomy. So it might be if you have a skull that's in multiple fragments, the pathologist will hand us those multiple fragments and say, can you please put them back together again? Because we understand the anatomy because we have studied it more than they do. It's easier for us to do the jigsaw and quicker for us to do the jigsaw than it is for them.
0: And if, if you are bought a bone or a fragment of a bone by, by a police force, where do you start with that? What, what are the first things you need to look for?
2: So first of all, it's to determine is it, is it going to be bone? Because sometimes the things that are brought to us, they look as if they might be bone, but sometimes they can be stems of a clay pipe. You know, so somebody's digging a hole and you're in an archaeological situation and my goodness me, you know, the number of people that will tell you that looks like a human fibula. No, it's not. It's the stem of a clay pipe. So it's that first thing. Is it going to be bone? Then the second thing is, if it's bone, is it human bone? So we used to run a service um, which ran for every police force in the UK that any fragments or bits of bone that were found, they could take a photograph and send it to us and we'd tell them whether it's something they needed to be worried about. And every weekend, guaranteed, when people were out walking along the foreshore, we'd get the phone call that says, we found a human hand on the beach. And inside our head, we'd be going, no, you haven't. You find a seal flipper, but let's have a photograph of it and guaranteed in would come the photograph and it's a seal flipper. So it's a pentadactyl limb, which looks incredibly like a hand, a human hand, but it isn't. And so we'd say, no, it's a seal flipper. What, What have you done with it? And they say, we've thrown it back out to sea. And we'd say, don't do that because when it comes in on the next tide, not only are we going to have a seal flipper, it'll be the same blooming seal flipper and we'll be able to identify. It's the one we did five miles down the coast 12 hours ago. So is it, is it going to be bone? Is it going to be human? And if it is human, how long has that person been dead? Because if that person has been dead more than 70 years before the present date, the chances are they're archaeological, because the opportunity of being able to find someone responsible or identify the individual is slim.
0: That's amazing. So that, that means that bones from the Second World War are archaeological?
2: They are, which is really interesting. Is that that 70-year cutoff point means that if they're if they're found now, the chances of identifying them are going to be slim. But if it if it's a suspicious death, then the chances of finding somebody responsible for it will also be slim. But of course, there will always be cases. So, if children's remains are found on Saddleworth Moor. It doesn't matter how much time has disappeared. We know which children it is we'd be looking for in that location. So, so it is. It's a guide, but it's not a hard and fast rule Now, if you've got a a complete body, then, of course, anybody should be able to tell you that it's human. But sometimes all we find are tiny little fragments. And when you have that fragment and you say, is it bone? Is it human? Could it be modern? And if so, what is it? then it's when it gets round to that, what is it? That's where you really need a strongly anatomically trained forensic anthropologist. Because sometimes it's such a tiny fragment of bone, you couldn't possibly identify what it's going to be. But we're looking for telltale little signs that might be on the surface that will allow us to narrow it down. This is something from inside a skull. This is something from a long bone, so it's a limb bone. This is something from a vertebral column from a spine. We might be able to get it down to a region, but we might not necessarily be able to get it down to a specific bone or a side of the body.
0: Talking about tiny fragments of bone from the skull, um, the case of Margaret Gardner fascinates me um, because I understand you were past a tiny fragment of bone, which I think was a centimetre by about half a centimetre in size. Um, And could you just explain the process of of that case and what what you found that piece of bone to be
2: yes of course so um, she went missing um, and there were suspicious circumstances around where she went missing and the police came around and searched the house and in the house they found some blood around the base of the the bathtub and it was margaret's blood and they put a, uh, an endoscope down the U-bend of the bath and they found a little bit of chip tooth enamel down there. Now, that didn't mean Margaret was dead. She could have clattered her chin off the bath. That would explain a chip tooth and some blood. So, so that wasn't in any way indicative that something um, fatal had occurred to her. What they then did was they swabbed the, the scenes of crime officer swabbed the door of the washing machine and they found, found blood there. And then they found this tiny fragment of bone in the filter of the washing machine. And the question was, first of all, what is it? Is it bone or is it a bit of plastic? And so just by being able to look under a, a, a fairly large high power microscope, we're able to see that it does indeed look like bone. At this point in an investigation, you need to do all of the tests that are non-destructive because if that fragment of bone was sent away for DNA analysis, it would destroy the entire fragment. And so it's really important that we identify, if we can, where in the body that fragment has come from before we then destroy that fragment. So we were able to look at, at the this, this small little piece, identify it was bone, and where could it have come from. And when you look at the human skull and in parts of the human skull, the outside of the skull is quite smooth. And the inside of the skull has got sort of little undulations looking a bit like a ploughed field. And that's why when the, the skull is developing, it sort of molds around those contours of the brain where you have what we call sulci and gyri, those sort of elevations and depressions. And so the inside of the skull has these indentations and the outside is quite flat. And the only place that happens is in the, in the skull. So we could say this is a bit of skull bone. What we could then see was that there was a little sharp ledge and the only place that that sharp ledge occurs with the shapes of that undulating surface is what we call the greater wing of the sphenoid, which is the bone just at the side of your temple. And right underneath there, you've got a massive blood supply. So we were able to say, if this fragment of bone, which we believe is from the left greater wing of the sphenoid, is indeed that, the chances of Margaret being alive are incredibly slim because of the massive blood supply underneath there. So the fragment of bone is then sent for DNA testing, and it is Margaret's, confirmed it's Margaret's. So why does a piece of Margaret's skull found inside the filter of a washing machine? Her husband at that point confessed that what had happened was she'd come home, they'd had a bit of an argument, he said he'd pushed her, he then said that she'd fallen down the steps, her head had hit the concrete and just exploded. Now that's somebody who watches an episode of CSI, because as you well know, the human head doesn't just explode when when you hit a piece of concrete. So under those circumstances, we're saying, we're not quite comfortable with the description we're getting. But then what he said was he picked her up and he realized that she was dead and he carried her into the bathroom. Now I'm happy with that, because that explains why we could find the blood in the bathroom. And then he noticed that he had some blood on the front of his jumper and he put his jumper into the washing machine. And that explains to me why we could find blood on the washing machine. And it chances where that fragment of bone had stuck to his jumper, which is it had gone through the wash and that's why we had it in the filter of the washing machine. What he then said he did was he wrapped her body in plastic. He put her body into the river Leven and as I believe to this date, her body has never been found. So when when we go to court, he is not prepared to accept murder and the defense lawyer is looking for manslaughter. So, of course, being able to identify what this fragment of bone is, is incredibly important for the defense argument. So it's the worst possible scenario for a scientist. Scientists are incredibly uncomfortable in a courtroom because it is not their game. It is not their ball. It is not even their rules and you're only allowed to answer the questions you're asked. So that you really are in many ways a hostage to fortune. It's a hugely alien environment for a scientist. And it is an extremely stressful situation for a scientist to be in. And whilst in in many cases, perhaps the law might not care, for a lot of scientists, it becomes such a, a, a really challenging environment that they get to a point where they say, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. And if they're they're not prepared to do this anymore, you have to really question, how are we serving justice in that sort of a scenario? So in Scotland, in the defense, I have Donald Finlay. Now, for those who are north of the border who have ever met Donald Finlay, he is, um, if I ever do anything wrong, he's the defense lawyer I want on my side. And he is a tremendous character. So, of course, when you find you've got Donald for the defence, you think, oh, this today is not going to go well. It really isn't. And anybody who thinks that a good lawyer doesn't prepare is incredibly mistaken and misguided. And it's, it's really the way in which I think, uh, in all honesty, many television programmes do the legal system a great disservice. Because Donald Finlay, although he may be a great theatrical, he also is incredibly well prepared. And so he reached down underneath the desk and he pulled out the big latest volume of Gray's Anatomy. And he dropped it on the desk in front of him with great theatrics. And he said, no, Professor, he said, I'm not doubting you for a moment, which means, of course, you know what's coming. And Donald spent the next four hours grilling me on how that bone forms how it grows in the child, how it fractures, how you can tell it's that part of the body and not another part of the body. And it was, it was a hugely long four hours and, and it is gladiatorial because his job is to pick holes in my defense to show that I'm not a credible witness. And that's a stressful thing so the, the the prosecution, you know, their case was over with me in about 10 minutes by the time they'd asked, you know, what my name was and what I did for a living. But Donald required the full four hours. So the gentleman in question was found guilty of manslaughter and he was given a prison sentence. And I met Donald, oh, a few months later, because I know him very well. And I said, Oh, Donald, I said, you know, you are hard on me in there. He said, I he said, I like getting you in court, he says it's always a challenge I find the pathologists far too easy these days (laughs) and I thought you know I don't want to be a challenge I really don't certainly not at the end of Donald but in those sorts of cases it really for me and it's the one thing that I've, I've really used as an example to train our students is to say don't think for a moment that you know more than the lawyer does because the lawyer only needs to find the one question that you can't answer and you're going to look that you're not the expert you think you are. You will come out of the courtroom either as the world's leading expert or the world's biggest blithering idiot. And you'll be one or the other, depending on how that day goes. And there's nothing can prepare a scientist except the blooded, you know, being blooded in the courtroom. You've got to go through it and you've got to go through the bad experiences with the good. But Donald is my biggest nightmare. But I just adore him. I absolutely adore him.
1: I, I do sometimes. Well, that's that's something that kind of came to came to me a bit when I was reading your 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 work as well. That this the it's not an it's not um it's not an exact match the meeting of the scientific world and the legal world, and yet that is kind of what your profession straddles in some ways. But there's a there's a directness and. A, a kind of neutrality about science that is obviously can't confronted in a courtroom and and as you said like that can then be a really stressful experience because it's not just relying on your own expertise and knowledge and um hypotheses and, and and proofs but you've also got to be you've got to be believed by the jury which is it's not that's not science you know that's so subjective and I wondered then kind of the simplest way of putting it then is like why do you do what you do is it do you see it as like it's more of a scientific endeavor an academic kind of achievement or fulfillment
2: i think you're absolutely right in in terms of the fact that science in the courtroom needs to be impartial and it isn't in many other courts around the world and it's the one thing that we say to our students as we're training your evidence should be the same Irrespective of whether you're appearing as a defense witness or a prosecution witness, it shouldn't make any difference. Your evidence is to the court, not to a side, but to the court. So that you need to have an opinion based on your science. But your opinion needs to have a degree of flexibility that says if somebody offers an alternative, you need to think about is that alternative possible? And if it is possible, then you need to be prepared to move with it. Now that's quite difficult for experts because they want to assume that my opinion is the one that's right and it's not going to shift. If you take that stance, you are dead in the water before you've even opened your mouth. Because you have to be able to say, I hadn't thought of that. Yes, that could make a difference because it's not your job as the scientist to convince the jury, it really isn't. It's your job to give the evidence. If the jury believe you, that's up to the jury. And you have much more experience of a jury than I do. Some I'm sure behave incredibly well and others I suspect you can't believe for a moment how they've come to the conclusion that they have. They're almost an unpredictable beast in that way. Our job is just to give them the evidence and our opinion on that evidence and to be flexible in it if there's a change.
1: And sorry, I just, because what you've said there just so keys into this specific moment in your first book as well, where you, that impartiality is absolutely kind of at the core of the way that you describe what you do. But then it seems like there perhaps were instances where, not that that was ever compromised, but I'm thinking particularly of the instance where you you identified um, a a young woman had uh, told her mother that she was being inappropriately touched by her father and you identified him through very uh, unusual and at the time, I think, not never used before methods.
2: We didn't identify him. And that's the really important point is that these were images um, that the young girl recorded on her her camera. Uh, She alleged her father was abusing her and she recorded the abuse, which means that she let the abuse happen again so she could record it. She told her mother and her mother didn't believe her. And because it was night vision camera, um when infrared light reflects on human skin it, it interacts with the deoxygenated blood that's in your vein and your vein stands out like black tram line so we could see the pattern of veins and the question that was asked of us is can you use veins to compare a suspect and offender and we said yeah of course we can we know we can but we don't know how reliable it is because that research hasn't been done but what I can do is I can exclude him so that if the person in the video does not have the same vein pattern as dad, I can tell you with 100% certainty, it's not him. But if the vein patterns match at that time, I couldn't tell you what the percentage likelihood was. So when we went into court, it was only with the evidence of being able to say, I cannot exclude dad. But I do know that the pattern that I see in the offender and the pattern that I see on the suspect match perfectly. But I cannot tell you at that stage what the likelihood was. The jury went away, jury came back and found dad not guilty. Um, And that is is their right to so do. But I asked the barrister, and it's a classic thing that you do, what did I do wrong? How was I able not to convince, or how was I not able to convince the jury that this pattern of matching was important? because they could look at their own right and left hand and see that vein patterns in the same person don't match. And what she said to me was the most chilling thing. She said, oh, it wasn't you. I don't, think they, I don't think it was a problem with your evidence at all. They didn't believe the girl because she didn't break down, she didn't cry. And I thought, okay, now there's a real problem there. There's a real problem there. That means that science, if it had been further advanced could well have helped to sway the jury in thinking about likelihood and probability. And so the science went into the courtroom too early. It didn't didn't overstep its reach because it went literally to what the science was able to tell us at the time, but it opened a way for research for us that said we can do better. And it shouldn't be that a courtroom depends on whether a young person breaks down to make their decision. It should be on science that has much greater evidential um, veracity to it. And that's what set off our research project from that point forward and is still going, I have to say, uh, which is, is just amazing and doing phenomenal stuff.
0: Yes, I mean, saying that the science was too early um, and more research was needed, it did lead to further research into. And the case of Dean Lewis Hardy um, and him being convicted for offences by identifying um, patterns of, in his hand and thumb.
2: Yeah, so Dean Lewis Hardy's case came very quickly after that first case. And I've, I've never named, the, obviously, the person in the first case because dad was found not guilty, um, but I do know the name and I keep telling her case in the hope that if she ever hears the case, she'll know it's hers. And and I want her to know that, that what although we weren't able to help her that day, we've done so much since then. But Dean Lewis Hardy came very close after that. And we did the same thing, we said, we can do a comparison and I can exclude him but I won't be able to tell you if it is him. But in this case, it wasn't about veins. It was about the pattern, he was a redhead, it's about the pattern of, of freckles on the back of his hand. So your, your freckles are completely random. If you're you if, you, you know, if you're a redhead, I can testify to that, trust me. <laughs> um, but also the pattern of skin creases that you have across your knuckles, you can see they're different on every finger and they're different across both hands. As anatomists, we know that and we know how that forms. So when our report landed that said all of these anatomical features between the offender and Dean Lewis Hardy match, but I can't, still can't tell you what the likelihood is at that stage. That was the point at which he changed his plea and he changed his plea to guilty and said, "Yep, yeah, it's me. Now that was the first time, I believe, that uh, a case of anatomical comparison of the hand or the back of the hand was used to um, such a great effect that the individual said, yeah, I've got nowhere to go on this, Uh, it is me. And a significant number of cases, once we've done the comparison, do result in that change of plea. Now, for me, that does a number of things. One, it it frees up a tremendous amount of time in your courtroom, and goodness knows how the courtroom's jammed up at the moment. So that's important. It saves money in the courtroom, but much more importantly than that nowadays, what that's doing is it's saying a young person is not going into court to give evidence against her father or her mother's boyfriend or or whomsoever it may be. We're we're actually addressing that, that charge before it gets to the courtroom.
0: Tune in next week to hear the second half of our conversation with Sue where she talks about how she gives the dead a voice.